0: For those of you who are uh, joining us for the first Sunday, you might wonder, what are these people so excited about? And I hope to show you today what it is that we sing about and why we sing this way on this day. For this day of all days is a day for great rejoicing and great celebration. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over to Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42 will be our scripture reading this morning. If you brought a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn there now, and um, you can read along with me, or also you can follow here on the screen behind me. Matthew 12:38 to 42. The Word of the Lord says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Father in heaven, this is your word and this is a very important text as your son gave a hint as to what we would celebrate on this day, Easter Sunday. It is an amazing fact that the resurrection of your son became and is the greatest proof of your reign, your rule, and your sovereign care for our sins through his death, burial, and resurrection. And we are a grateful people today. And so, Lord, as we consider what the resurrection means and how it is the ultimate proof, I pray that you would open our ears, illumine our minds, help us to see things today from your word that we wouldn't see without your help. And, Father, I pray for those who've come today searching with a yearning in their heart to know what is What's the Bible? What's life? What's eternity all about? That today, God, you would graciously, lovingly, and definitively draw them to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're, as College Park Church, in the midst of a rather lengthy series in the Gospel of Matthew. And I timed our journey through this study such that we would land today on a passage that is connected to what we celebrate today, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 12 is a chapter set with all sorts of conflict, a growing animosity, if you will, between Jesus and the religious establishment. You see, Jesus was attracting large crowds and he was breaking all of the status quo rules. He declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath. He even accuses the religious leaders in their assessment of his miracles as being empowered by the devil, that they have committed the one unforgivable sin. And he then asserts in verses 34 to 37 that the real problem with the Pharisees is their heart. That the things that come out of their mouth is just a small sliver of the cesspool of what's really going on. However, the conflict between Jesus and the religious rulers doesn't end there. It continues or spills over into the passage that we're studying this morning. And what follows in verses 38 to 42 is a rather opaque statement on Jesus' part hinting at his coming resurrection. Now, there will be other parts in the New Testament where Jesus will make a very clear statement that he will die and will be raised again the third day. But in this passage, he comes at it more indirectly with a little nuance. He's not very clear. And what he does is he connects his resurrection to what he calls here the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what my aim is today is to figure out what this sign of the prophet Jonah is, how it's reflected in the text, and then help you see why Jesus would say that there will be no other sign given than this sign of the prophet Jonah. And hopefully in doing so, you'll understand why we sing like we do on this day. So our passage begins with a request from the religious leaders. Verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. This is after he has accused them of having evil hearts. And they say to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, it sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? Teacher, we wish a sign from you. But the problem is sometimes even innocent things that we do end up being really bad decisions. For example, if you happen to be the editor at the Indianapolis Star who decided, you know what would be fun to do? Let's take a picture of Mike Krzyzewski and go ahead and put little horns on him and then print out 30,000 copies of the Indy Star. Not a good idea, right? Especially when he's the coach that's going to face your hometown team Monday night, right? So sometimes the best ideas that we have are not necessarily really good decisions. And this sounds on the part of the Pharisees as if it's a genuine Request, Teacher, we would see a sign from you. But the problem is, is that even the word teacher cues us in. Matthew never uses the word teacher in reference to Christ, except by those who are trying to trap him and those who are not his true followers. So this is not a, a genuine request. This is another attempt to trap the Lord Jesus They request a sign from him. And what's remarkable is that Jesus has just performed a miracle. Just a few verses earlier, he had healed this man who was both blind and mute. But what they're looking for here is different than a miracle. There's a little distinction in the Bible between a miracle and a sign. A a miracle was something that was done on earth. And sometimes people believe that those miracles could be performed by those who not only had God-given powers, but even satanic powers. But a sign was different. No, a sign was something that came from heaven downward, and it was an indication of God's approval, a a validation, or a credential, if you would. An example of this, a good one, would be at Jesus' baptism, when God pronounces, "...behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." So what they're looking for is that kind of sign. Prove that you are the Son of God. Show us that you are the Son of God. Interestingly enough, it's the same kind of phraseology that we heard in Matthew 4 at the temptation of Jesus where the devil says to Christ, if you are the Son of God, then cast yourself off of this pinnacle. Jesus knows, however, that what's going on inside of their hearts is really a an adulterous, wicked heart that's in rebellion against God, which is why in verse 39 he says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus sees their desire for proof not as a genuine desire or as an honest discovery process, but rather their request for a sign simply shows how far off they really are. From true faith. See, the problem is, is that all that they needed was standing right in front of them. They didn't need anything more to verify who Jesus is or to give evidence as to what kind of person he was. Everything they needed was right in front of them, which is why the Apostle John often describes Jesus as the light. It's as though he's the full disclosure of God to man. And yet at the same time, even though the light is in the world, the remarkable thing is even though Jesus is right in front of them, they don't see who he is. John Chapter 1 verse 9 says the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own but his own people did not receive him. You see here is what happens so often that people refuse to believe what should be so obvious to them. They want some sort of proof. They, they want God to show up or send you an email or a text message or show me that you're out there when the reality is the nagging conviction in your soul over who you are and what you've done. That's enough proof and you know it. But the reality is you want more. But the fact is if you had more, you'd still want more. Because the problem isn't proof. The problem is the heart. Now skip ahead to verse 41. We'll come back to verse 40. Because in these verses, Jesus talks about judgment. Verse 41, "...the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment..." for this with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah so jesus points them back to an old testament history lesson where um, the prophet jonah was sent to bring conviction to preach the gospel to the people of nineveh which were they were that was the capital city of the country of assyria the arch enemy of the israelites and when jonah arrived and preached the message there was a massive revival that happened the people repented and god spared the city and so he uses the example of Nineveh as says these pagan people, these non-Israelites, they repented when God called them to. And they're going to be the ones who will in the judgment day condemn you for your lack of response. The second example he gives is that of the queen of the south in verse 42. It says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So a queen from modern-day Yemen traveled all the way from there to the city of Jerusalem in order to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And yet what Jesus is saying here is that something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon is here, meaning himself. So what does he do here? He uses first the example of non-Israelite pagans to illustrate the aggressive steps that these people took to respond to God's activity in contrast to the lack of response on the part of the religious rulers. The second thing that Jesus does here is he uses these Old Testament references in order to show them that there's something greater than Jonah or Solomon right here in front of you. And yet their response has been tepid. And third, he exhorts them that the right responses of these non-Israelites will be used in judgment against those who are looking for a sign. So the argument of the passage goes like this, the Religious rulers seek a sign, Jesus rebukes them, he tells them they'll receive no sign except for this particular sign of Jonah, and then he explains that the folks of Nineveh and the Queen of the South, these non-Israelite pagans who aggressively sought spiritual light will, be ser- will serve as the judges of those in Israel who simply were passive in their response to who and what Jesus is. Now the important part of this entire little paragraph is what is found in verse 39 and 40. Here's what it says, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now this sign relates to the story of Jonah who is this prophet that was told to go to Nineveh and in his rebellion against god initially to go and preach to the people of nineveh he boarded a ship and went the opposite direction there was a huge storm jonah was eventually tossed into the sea and a great fish came and swallowed him and jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish trying to come to his senses and god got his attention as i imagined it would you if you were spent three days in the belly of a fish you'd pray a little differently in that wouldn't you Lord, get me out of here, right? Get me out of here. Little did he know that God was going to use um, a spiritual force and cause Jonah to be thrown up onto the shore. And there he is in whale vomit, rescued, saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? <laughs> Jesus uses this example of Jonah in that he was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. And Jesus says, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what Jesus does here is he uses this sign of Jonah as a foreshadowing of what will happen to him. In other words, Jesus in this moment is predicting his resurrection. Now, later on in his ministry, he will be more explicit and very clear, like in Matthew 17 when he says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. But here, what Jesus says is simply, there will be no other sign given to prove that he is who he claims to be than the resurrection. In other words, the resurrection, what we celebrate on this Sunday is the ultimate sign from God in regards to his reign and in regards to redemption and in regards to who Jesus is. There is no other sign given than the sign of Jonah. So that means that if you're a person who's trying to figure out what the Bible is all about and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be forgiven, and what does it mean to be in a right relationship with God, you need look no further than this Sunday. Because this Sunday, and what we celebrate on this day of all days, is the greatest sign, greatest picture, greatest emblem, greatest proof as to who Jesus is and why He demands allegiance and is worthy of worship. So, the sign of Jonah, then is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that answers the first question, what is the sign of Jonah? But the second question is, well, what does this resurrection really mean? Or what makes this resurrection worthy of it being the ultimate proof? I want to give you four things, four reasons, four statements about the resurrection and why the resurrection is the ultimate sign the exclusive sign. The first is this, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ signaled the defeat of sin and the defeat of death. In order to understand what's going on here at at resurrection, and in the concept of what it meant for Jesus to be loosed from the grave, you have to know that sin and death are absolutely intimately connected. In other words, because of the presence of sin, Death entered the world. Before there was no sin, there was no death. Death and sin is not the normal way that God designed the universe. It's an aberration. It's not the normal way that God's designed things. It's normal for our experience, but it's not the normal way that God wanted the world to operate. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, before there was any sin in the world, there was no death. And God told the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, that they could eat of any tree in the garden except one tree, the tree of knowledge and good of evil. And God said, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now it wasn't that the fruit was poisonous, but it was that by disobeying God's command, it would then bring upon the world the presence of death because of the reality of sin. And as I'm sure you know, they directly violated the command of God, they ate of the tree, they sinned against God, and the result was that death then entered human existence. Death entered our world. Death was the immediate consequence of sin, and sin now becomes this, this ultimate distortion of creation. It mars everything. It messes up all things, and as a result, death now became the great enemy of human beings. It's the thing that tyrants use to keep people in subjection. They kill you. It's the thing you fear and try and work against. This constant sense that there's something in life that you can't avoid and you'll never be able to cheat, and that is death. I was reflecting on this in a new way this last week. I had a birthday last week, and I celebrated my 39th birthday. I was reflecting on it that I've got one year left until I hit the crest and begin moving headlong towards the grave. And I began feeling rather old. In fact, I was thinking as I woke up the next morning, it's, I only have one year and then I start to die, right? And then every part of me, I'm just dying. Every day I'm one step closer to the grave. And what a depressing thought. And think of how many of you are much closer to the grave than I am. And what made matters even worse, that same week I got my hair cut and came back in the house and my daughter said, Daddy, you look funny. And I said, what do you mean I look funny? She said, you're losing your hair. It's getting thin. And I was like, why don't you be quiet, right? So the reality is we live in a world that is decaying and as much as we try and do to make death dressed up or cleaned up, the reality is death is a sober reminder that sin is real, and because of that, death is in our existence. Now, the only way for sin, this treasonous rebellion against God to be atoned for, is for those who sin to die. That's the direct connection. And that's why in the Old Testament, if you were to read it through, you'd find sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, because the only way that sins were ever atoned for or paid for was by the penalty of death. And the message of the Bible, the Gospel, is that God in His infinite love and wisdom sent His own Son, Jesus, who took upon Himself the form of a man to be the ultimate and final sacrifice once and for all for sin. So Jesus then comes as a baby, grows into a man, lives a sinless life, is executed on a cross, and all of this is happening on earth. And all of that's what we celebrated this entire week but there's another plan above the cross it is that all of this that's happening on the earth is part of God's grand plan to make forgiveness possible he's making it possible to open a way for human beings to once and for all have their sins forgiven and to have the grip of sin and death be broken as Paul says in second Corinthians for our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in, in, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what God was doing was making a way so that He could be just. You see, because God can't just simply say, oh, forget about your sins. We know you didn't mean it. The fact of the matter is God knows we didn't mean it. And He can't just simply wash them away without some effective and sufficient payment so the bible says in order for god to be both just and justifier meaning be both holy and compassionate there has to be a sacrifice to cover those sins and the good news of the bible is that god did that through christ making forgiveness possible and the resurrection of jesus christ signaled to the entire creation that once and for all the grip of sin and the hold of death has been broken. The resurrection of Christ signals that permanent and eternal reconciliation between God and human beings is now possible. The resurrection of Christ announced that death and sin had been defeated, such that Paul says in Romans 10, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, what we celebrate on this day is that sin has been broken, death has been defeated, and a new day has come to the earth. And that's why this day is so important. The resurrection signaled the defeat of death and sin. Secondly, the resurrection served as validation of Jesus as the Son of God. The resurrection was a credential, if you will. And what you need to know is that the concept of the resurrection was not a new concept in Jesus' day. Most people during this time believed in the resurrection. In fact, when Jesus was standing at the tomb of Lazarus, before he called him forth and raised him from the dead, he said to Martha, don't worry, he will be raised. And she said, I know that he will be raised in the resurrection. Well, what she was referring to was the coming last day resurrection, where God will gloriously raise all people from the grave, will judge every one of them, and then set up a new rule in the new heavens and the new earth. And everyone in Jesus' day, who was Jewish, believed that there was coming a day of resurrection so resurrection was not a new concept however what no one had considered and what no one even thought of was that jesus would experience that resurrection before everyone else so there is no other person in human history that avoided death by being recreated brought back in a new body and established through this beautiful resurrection. Oh, there was Enoch and Elijah who never died, but nobody like Christ was resurrected. In fact, it is a foretaste of what is to come. And therefore, when Jesus is resurrected, and when it is seen that He has a new resurrected body, when He says to Thomas, Put your put your hand, put your finger in the holes in my hands, and put your hand in my side. When He eats fish and bread with the disciples. When he, when he is seen with a real, physical, resurrected, recreated body, it is a symbol, a sign, a clarion message that Jesus is like no other human being. The resurrection is God's way of saying, this is my Son. This is my Son. And your worst in this world will not hold Him. This is my Son. And therefore, the empty tomb declares that He truly is the Son of God. The third reason why the resurrection is the ultimate sign is that it secures a power for living now that is a present reality for those who name the name of Christ. You see, the defeat of sin, the overthrow of death, and the recreation of the physical body of Jesus they they don't just have historical reference and they don't just have future reference. They have immediate implications for those who've trusted in Christ as their personal Savior. For those of us who've said, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Come and rule in my heart. I take your death as my own. God, count His sacrifice as sufficient for me. You rule my life. For those people, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is operational now in our lives. How so? Well listen to Romans 6. It says this, We are therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That means that every day that you wake up as a follower of Christ and you enter the world, you are living in a resurrected power. And the reason that God has sent His Spirit in you is not just to fill you and convict you, but it's also to give you new power to be a different kind of person, waiting for the full fulfillment of your redemption, but in the meantime living as a person with a new level of zeal and authority and power to realize I am a new creature in Christ. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. So there's a real sense in which the resurrection of Christ is not just a historical event. Rather, it's a historical event with enormous practical implications regarding how a follower of Jesus lives his or her life every day. It means that I live in the authority of a king who's conquered sin and death. And although there still are temptations in my soul and still things that my wicked heart wants to do, the reality is I am a child of the Son of God and I have been delivered from the power and dominion of all of the evil of this world. And therefore, Paul says, walk in a new life. That's why we sing. Because this day means everything. Finally, The resurrection of Jesus Christ seals the future of those who trust in Christ. You see, the cross was meant to be a fearful tool used by Rome in order to intimidate people and to keep them under the thumb of the Roman government. Its cruelty and its torturous method of execution was meant to communicate, don't you dare challenge us or we'll do this to you. And Jesus' crucifixion was a tragedy for the disciples. In their minds, initially it meant that they had chosen to follow the wrong person. Rome and lying religious rulers had won. In the end, they were more powerful than Christ. They killed him. He's dead. He's gone. But the resurrection of Christ changes all that. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that he is untouchable. Abuse him, torture him, mock him, kill him, bury him, but he'll be back. It's the stuff of horror movies when you're on the wrong side of the cross. So hear me. You can use His name in blasphemy. You can mock Him. You can say all you want about Him, but listen to me, one day you will stand before Him. He'll be back. And for those who know Him, the fact of His resurrection becomes the stuff of incredible hope because He is our Savior and He reigns. But even more the bible says that christ's resurrection is the first fruits of things to come which means that everything that god did for christ he intends to do for his followers yes. which means that while we may not know what it's like to go to the cross while we may not have the same level of abuse we can still take comfort in the fact that there is no abuse no injustice No mockery, no pain, no suffering, no loss, nothing connected with the effects of sin in our world that God will not one day through Christ make right. The future hope for the believer is the same God who resurrected his son from the grave will resurrect those who belong to his son. But that also means a warning. For those who do not know His Son. A warning that death is not the final verdict. The resurrection of the dead will happen to every person. The resurrection of the dead will happen to every person ever born. And every person will stand before the Creator. And only those who know Jesus as their Savior, having placed their faith and trust in Him, will stand forgiven, cleansed, renewed, and safe from the punishment that sin deserves. So, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate sign, both to believers and unbelievers, because it demonstrates the ultimate reign of God over the universe. It demonstrates that the very worst thing in life, death, because of life's greatest aberration, sin, even that God is able to conquer. And that there's nothing that God doesn't reign over and supreme. And so Jesus tells the religious rulers that there will be no other sign than this one because there is no greater evidence of the reign of God and the supremacy of His Son and the penalty of sin and God's power to break the grip of sin and death. No other sign. No other proof. You see, this is what separates Christianity from all other faiths. A a Muslim hopes in paradise if he does enough to earn Allah's favor. A a Hindu hopes that by doing karma, that he will return to earth and pursue a higher spiritual level in some other form. A, A Buddhist hopes that he will lose his identity in the great nameless, formless beyond. But Christianity is so radically different. It places our hope on one person. Trusting not in what we do, but trusting in what He did. Everything in Christianity is all through, by, and for Jesus. So that reconciliation with God only comes through Him. And so when God raises Him from the dead, He makes a clear and definitive statement to the universe about who is real and who is really in charge. Which is why Peter said this at Pentecost. Let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's Redeemer and He is King. There is no greater sign than this one. There is no better proof than an empty grave. There is no more compelling reason to turn and trust God. Christ than the powerful sign called the resurrection. There is no other proof more substantial than this. And so my question is this, what are you waiting for? And if you know Him, this is the day. And so let us rejoice. Father in Heaven, thank You that You by Your Son have won the greatest of all victories and created for us a path of reconciliation, a path of hope, a path of forgiveness made possible only through the sacrifice of Your Son. Oh Lord, the mercy that You've extended to us, the grace that You've afforded to us is only because of Your infinite, infinite kindness. And Lord, I pray today, I pray today, God, You'd cause those who know You to rejoice and what it means to be yours. And Lord, for those who are still searching, that today you'd mercifully draw them to your heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.